Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 149. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers, of the following four genres. Crime. Mystery. Suspense. And thrillers. You put your microphone down for a second. It's between your knees. <laughs> this is a, There's a reason. Oh, is it? Okay, well, we'll find out that in a minute. Well, welcome to the show, and uh, we are delighted to be joined by Stephen Ronson as our guest this week, who joins us from Vermont in the United States, although he's a Brit And he's actually, he's actually in this country now, because I saw a photo of him landing at the airport. Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's right, he's going up to St Andrews to see his daughter, I think. Yeah. So, uh, you know, great to speak to Stephen, and uh, he is a uh, recently published debut novelist. Yes, he is. With so Hodder and Stone. It only just came out, hadn't it, when we spoke to him. So yeah. very recently come out and fascinating talking to him about um, the process of getting to publication and the writing of that particular novel and all sorts. Yes, Linked absolutely. to his childhood as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was great. So Stephen joining us a little later in the show. Uh, News-wise, it's, there's, there's, a, there's a bit about... A bit about, I like that. Yeah, and um, it's really hard to judge where to start. But I suppose we go with publishing's reaction to the autumn statement uh, yes. from the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK. So this is really only relevant to those of us in the UK, I suppose. But there has been a reaction from the publishing industry, which is a bit weird in some ways. Um, generally speaking disappointment i think yeah so the o overall reaction is um disappointment uh in that there were opportunities to do some things to help uh, publishing companies and authors um so i suppose the main example is the publishing lending right yes um which is it's, it's like a sort of a way for authors to earn a little bit addition a little bit extra income from library lending. From library lending. Not, not all authors know about this, and, and I think that's a great shame because, you know, there's yes. a lot of missed opportunity. And um, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nominal amount in the UK. And, in fact, it was halved during the pandemic when libraries were largely shut and the government halved the pot of money that is available to authors. The maximum any author can get is £6,600 from being lent out. So yeah. the likes of Anne Cleves or... I know, Mick Heron or someone, um, would probably qualify for that much. But if you're involved in publishing at all, then you have... Um, Is that per book or per author? Per author. Per, per author. author, I think. And um, I didn't know this until a few weeks ago when you brought this up, that 
as an audiobook narrator, I should be entitled to applying to the scheme. Now, um, the rate of money or the amount of money has not been changed. So it's, no, it's so, and that that is an area of disappointment. But yeah, they're basically saying that, like you say, it was half during the pandemic. So the, the reason to have it uh, reduced is not there anymore. No. You know, libraries are open again and people are using them again. So yeah. it was an opportunity to help authors in that way. Well, um, you know, tangentially, um, I was reading an article today which says that a lot of councils are, they got a squeeze in this statement, effectively, that the tax cuts that were announced in national insurance in particular are going to be funded by local authorities having their budgets slashed even further. And that's where the libraries get squeezed. Yeah, and that's that's worrying, that is. Yeah, absolutely. And a number of councils in the the UK have actually gone bankrupt. Uh, Birmingham City Council um, and Woking are two good examples of councils that (laughs) uh, can't... What happens in that situation? Well, the then? government get it, move in directly, I think. So um, they have to give the money then to get them. Well, out no, of not so much. Not, no, no, they don't have to give the money, but they just they they take direct control. I think is the is the way that these things tend to move. So that is a situation. But in terms of trying to join that scheme, which is another point, um, it's not possible at the moment because no. you have to go through the British Library. And at the time of recording this, the British Library website is down it has down. been it has been down down for several weeks and the reason is hackers have got in there and are holding the british library to ransom but yeah they leaked some data didn't they so they did so the british library had to shut the, the the website down to try and find out um so yeah there is a there was a news item about that actually um about the latest on that which is that they've named the group or the gang behind the british library cyber attack they're called Vicider, Vicider. <laughs> May I have a look? <laughs> now you say that. Um, I would say it's probably Reseder. Oh, Reseder. Oh, I quite like Vicider. Um, <laughs> yes. Cider made out of rye. So they're yes, they're basically trying to get money out of um, out of the British Library to get to <laughs> to restore it. Uh, they've asked for five hundred ninety thousand pounds. Wow. Okay, that's not good, is it? So it's ongoing, basically. Then, yeah. Um, Why didn't the police just well, catch them and put them in prison? Well, you think so, but I mean, they're very elusive. They have uh, attacked government institutions in Portugal, Chile, Kuwait, and also a U.S. hospital group. So uh, they are um, experts at it. So it's not just some fourteen-year-old in his bedroom. No. <laughs> no, it doesn't appear to be. Anyway, um, so yes, uh, that's one area, and uh, <laughs> there was no real change in corporation tax. And... No, but there is that um, the, the um, small business. Um, is it like the increase in tax over a certain when you earn over a certain amount as a small business has been? Yes, they have shifted that threshold yeah, when so, you have to VAT register, I think. So when, when the article says, all oh, the publishing industry says... Yeah. But actually, for, for certain sectors of publishing industry, and quite big sectors too, so small businesses, that's yeah. a good thing for. The other thing is the um, national insurance change that yes. they've made, which will help people who work freelance. Yeah, and, and true, true. The publishing industry is made up of an enormous amount of freelance Yes, it is. Work. Yes, you know, I know... Yeah. Yeah, only a we fraction both. of people actually have salaried full-time jobs yeah. in publishing, and a lot of it is, as you know, because you you are one of those people, as, and to a small degree, I am too. 
So um, no, that's uh, that's that. Uh, but the, what, the one point that amused us both in this article <laughs> yes. was um, so Bridget Shine, who is the um, chair of the, the uh, chair of the IPG, the Independent yes. Publishers Guild, which we're Guild. members of. Um, yes, so <laughs> she did make some very pertinent comments, but the one that made us smile was when she said, "Well." The, the um the alcohol du- duty alcohol duty is frozen it's frozen and that's good because there's lots of parties in publishing <laughs> brilliant yes we can all rest easy with that thought um brilliant anyway um talking of networks and and you know uh publishing um industry groups we've joined one this week we talked about it last week actually we we have formally joined yeah we've moved quite fast haven't we because yeah. we talked about it last week in the context so of, the name of the organization is it's the indie press network yeah um and it's will dandy from renard press who came up with it and he's sort of the linchpin behind it and uh we crossed paths with will um not long after we started um so you know exchanged a few emails we both took part in a ipg um, put your books in front of booksellers event. Yes, it was an online um, event, which was nightmarish. It was, and because so when I, I was talking to Will this week, and I said, "Yes, of course I remember you," because I remember your pitch to the booksellers was brilliant. And he said, "I don't know why you said that. It was terrifying." <laughs> um, it was good. It just goes to show, doesn't it, that it's sometimes quite hard to tell. Someone can come across as very confident, professional, and everything. Actually, they're quivering inside. We were quivering. I know that. Yeah, we were. But we'd only been going. Um, a just weeks. a few months wasn't <laughs> yeah. it so um so yeah so in the space of a week we've, we've done quite a lot because we had to uh, send a lot of data to um the ipw ipn sorry i don't know what ipw is the ipn um because we'll be able to sell our books through their hub their website um yes so it's another it's another sales perks. opportunity for us there were so many other things that um he's setting up and the organization will represent the interest and of course to qualify as a publisher you have to have five or fewer employees so it really is the scale of operation that we're it's the end of the independent market that we're concerned with as opposed to the ipg which is quite a broad church with some monster big players as members of it and their concerns are very different to the ones that our size of publisher are concerned yeah. with. so i mean the ipg is also open to individuals and also yeah. organizations in within publishing who not necessarily publish books they just work in yeah, publishing no. i mean there so, has many benefits but i think i think this thing this new network is is really important because you know when we meet other small publishers we all say well there's no one really representing our interests and collectively i mean with 37 members already this is already quite a, a, a powerful voice, mm. I think, new voice for publishing. If um, Will is able to steer it in the right direction and 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 get the the you know harness the momentum of his brilliant launch, so we're we're hopeful. I mean, you know, the things that we can we've been thinking top of our heads, it could help us do is you know negotiate better printing rates from certain suppliers because of the scale of the opportunity that the companies will face, will have. Yeah, and um, sharing skills. So, for example, absolutely. podcasting skills. Maybe another publisher is thinking of a podcast and they want some advice. Yeah. No, no, there's, I think there's, there's lots of things that, that, you know, and there'd be some really good advice and, and success stories that we can draw on. So, yeah, fully behind that and um, very excited by the opportunity as it develops. 
Yes, looking forward to seeing where we go from here. And um, finally, um, a little something that you discovered this week which we didn't know about and came as a bit of a shock, which is... Yes, no, no. I mean, we would. This is through one of your freelance roles. <laughs> I know what you're talking about now. Sorry. <laughs> yes, you're looking a bit blank at me. Um, the, uh, the the fact is that I didn't know this. Under German copyright legislation, titles of books are very strictly copyrighted, so no one else can publish with the same title. Now, this is a bizarre piece of legislation. In in you know to our ears and british mindset um and makes it life very difficult yes so this came about because um i work with um independent author rachel mclean and she's in the process of getting one of her series uh translated into german and they all start in english they all start with the same word deadly so you've got deadly wishes deadly christmas deadly uh, i think it's desires is one of them Mm. and the, the translator pointed out that um the first one deadly wishes there is already a book with the direct translation of that in German, so she couldn't have that as a direct translation. And there's been lots of sort of toing and froing about what what we could do about this. And you know, first of all, I thought, oh, she this translator is being a bit pedantic about this. And you know, in English, you often see books called um, "The Killer on the Loose" or mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. "The Woman at the Window." Deadly this, that, and the other, yes. <laughs> Yeah. But no, it's true. You 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 cannot have a book because the title that's already out there, already published. I don't know if that applies to out of copyright titles. I don't know the sort of mm. the details, but wow, it is a restriction. That so is it was a that shock. is that is well, given that there are millions of titles out there, to not be able to repeat one is frightening. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because how difficult is that to get around? Some of our books do have the same title as another book. So The Chemist is a good example. Mm. Um, yeah. The author of the um, vampire stuff, Stephanie Meyer, Meyer? Mm-hmm. she published a book called The Chemist at the same time as we published a book called The yes. Chemist. Yes. So when I was putting in The Chemist into Amazon, it would come up with hers as well. Ours is much better. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so without question. Um no, well, I mean that—that that was a, a little wrinkle. Um, it just shows the difficulties of publishing internationally as well. You know, it's, that has—that's a wrinkle that has just popped up for Rachel when she's trying to, uh, at very considerable expense, because translation is not cheap process by any means. I mean, it dwarfs the cost of audio books. Um, but the other thing is, it, it, what what a you know what a nightmare. <laughs> well, I mean, the translator. Pointed out a very good point as well because I said to the translator, We want the title translated and the blurb first so we can put it up for pre order. Yes. And the translator said, Yeah, but I might decide the title should be something else once I start the translation. <laughs> yeah. Because it's sort of the, 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 if you directly translate something into another language, it might not necessarily have the same meaning or it might be some sort well, of fam- nuance of it. Is yeah, different. well, famously, didn't JFK. In his speech in front of the the Brandenburg Gate, ich bin ein Berliner, um, <laughs> you know, yes. and he, you know, so he ang- used the anglicised word of I'm a Berliner, which of course is some sort of hot dog. Isn't uh, it? Yes, he basically stood up and said, "I'm a, I'm a hot dog." Yes, so um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's delicate, it's delicate, um, but it's fascinating. Yes, I mean, I always remember the the French version, and it's not 
by any means weird. The French version of The Empire Strikes Back is L'Empire Contre-Attaque. <laughs> the Empire well, Lovely counter- French accent there. The, uh, L'Empire Contre-Attaque. I remember the posters being all over France when I was travelling there in 82, it would have been, um, when the film came out. So, no, it was 1980. I beg your pardon, 1980. And um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's a straight translation. And it kind of works. In that case, but it's interesting when you know another language as a second language and you you know it enough to notice when things aren't translated directly and you realise mm. it's a cultural thing that maybe the, what is in that language translated into English isn't exactly what you would have thought of as yeah. a learner of that language. But then you think, hang on a minute, if you translate that directly, that's... You know, offensive or, or yeah, a rude or word just doesn't or, make sense. Sometimes yeah. it just doesn't make sense. No, no, or, no, no. no. But, it's, so I, mean, I, it, I find the subject fascinating. It's but. a vexed subject. Anyway, we've dealt dealt with yes, yeah, so de- delved into that and uh, gone down the rabbit hole. But uh, found that fascinating. That's one of those sort of things we didn't know, and you stumble across something like that, and you think, got to mention that on the podcast. Yeah. So we have. <laughs> okay, let's talk to Stephen Ronson. Now, Stephen um, was born and brought up in Sussex, in East Sussex, near Uckfield. Beautiful spot, Uckfield. And um, he now works in the United States. And uh, during lockdown, familiar story this, uh, decided that it was the perfect opportunity to write the book he'd always wanted to write. And he did indeed do so and he has a fantastic method how he finally got it so i shouldn't really say what that is but it's definitely worth listening to it might inspire people to yeah absolutely and um you know we we didn't um really know what to to expect um as we spoke to to steven because you know it, it's always interesting talking to people who've recently fulfilled their dream of becoming an author and you know it's it's uh impressive because steven's not just become an author but he's got himself picked up a, a top agent and one of the big publishers as yes. well in Hodders. And the book is The Last Line, which um, is uh, uh, set in 1940. And it starts with a fantastic scene of a Spitfire crash landing, followed by a Messerschmitt 109 landing in an English field. And uh, that then starts off an adventure for John Cook. And... Uh, The publishers say that it should appeal to fans of Lee Child and Robert Harris. Something we put to him (laughs) during the interview. Absolutely. So let's talk to Stephen Ronson. What a pleasure it is to be speaking across the pond to Stephen Ronson. Welcome to the Hopcast Book Show. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to meet you guys. And congratulations, your first novel. It's out now. So uh, congratulations. The the last line. Quite a journey to get there, I imagine. It, it, well, exactly. I mean, as as anyone who's who's finished a novel will know, and then and get, then got it published and got it out to the shelves. Um, yeah, the, I mean, honestly, the it's a lifelong dream for me. So you know, I, I'm I'm now I'm okay to say it. I'm 51 years old. Um, I've spent my whole life since <laughs> since reading, you know, Famous Five under the cover while my dad shouted, banged on my door, telling me to get outside and get some clean exercise outside i've always you know always wanted to be a writer so it's yeah it's taken a while honestly it's it's very it's an emotional moment to be honest yeah yeah and i I had the same experience actually under the covers reading the famous five (laughs) yeah no i was i was just actually it's funny i was writing that just this morning for last week's episode which was you know reading adventure stories was the gateway 
for yeah. me too. And last week's author, uh, Jackie King, had had written sort of about the sort of childhood that she'd enjoyed, mm. and indeed that sort of that sort of you know atmosphere. And and I suppose when you grew up in Sussex, mm. Uckfield particularly, which I I, I know reasonably well, um, is an area where you can go off and have adventures. Right. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting, actually. I was talking to my dad last night. So um, so my book, um, you know, set in World War II um, at the beginning of the war uh, about a character who's who's essentially told, look, we want you to form an auxiliary unit, which will, you know, once the Germans invade, because everyone thought they're coming, you know, they're going to invade. Mm. Once the Germans invade, we want you to sort of melt into the woods and start running a guerrilla unit. Um and yeah, I mean, I spent my childhood walking those woods and those fields, mostly with my dad, with the dog. And then as I got to a moody teen, you know, by myself with the dog. <laughs> and I was reflecting, actually, it was interesting growing up in the 70s where we had the whole Cold War. I actually did think, I used to walk those fields thinking, when the world ends, I'll have to sort of come out here and, you know, try and scratch a living. I mean, I don't, I don't know how I was going to survive and the rest of the world wasn't, but... um so yeah, and then when COVID came, I think it really took me back to that sort of feeling of, wow, you know, the world is shutting down, we're under siege. I, I wish I could be walking those woods and fields again and sort of, you know, preparing in some way. Yeah, I, I think that's, that, I think that was an atmosphere that we all felt yeah, so, growing so, up, especially teenagers during Cold War. Same age, essentially. Yeah, yeah we are. Yeah. <laughs> so we all remember the 70s. And I, yeah, I, yeah I, I was trying to explain to my, I've got three boys. I was trying to explain to them how that felt because they've been mm. learning about the Cold War and about right, the post Cold War period as well in history, which made me feel oh, old. Yeah. But it, that feeling of, if it happens, like you say, you kind of think you're going to be one of the only ones to survive because you can't imagine the alternative. Course, so you do course. think I'm going to I'm going to have to um, grab all the tins out the cupboard yeah, and go live in yeah. the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and 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 interestingly, with the Second World War as well, you know, we so if you grew up in the seventies like we did, it's only just dawned on me that. The, the age I am now, when I was a child, all the men and women who were that age, who were 50, they were like in their late teens and 20s in the war. They were the ones fighting um, yes. either on the home front or out there. And so for them, it was very recent. It would be like me talking about 9-11 now to my children. Um, but to us, it was still ancient history. And, we, you know, we would watch The Great Escape and, you know, that sort of stuff on TV. But it was it was still unimaginably far back in time but for most of the country most of the grown-ups in the country it actually just happened yeah so like our parents particularly right. grandparents yeah yeah well our parents i mean mine was born during an ox well my dad was born during the oxford blitz and uh yeah you, you're right i mean we were talking about this only a couple of weeks ago about how the second world war has such a grip on our generation's mm. uh, you know imagination because Sunday night drama, right. more often than not, was about World War Two. If yeah. it wasn't that, it was going to be the Sunday uh, Hollywood movie was going to be, you know, um, either something made recently. The in Dan Col Busters. Well, the Dan Busters in around. black and white, yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it it it's quite easy for our fifty-something generation to mm. to channel back to. It feels like a, a period that we know so well, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, as you say, TV and film have done that for us in a way, um, you know, right through. I mean, my favourite drama in the last 20 or so years was always Foyle's War. You know, I used to love that 
I love that sort of gentleness of of the Sussex countryside, and you've got the the super decent man of, of foil, um, but you know all these great stories um, going on, um, and I think probably I I sort of stole quite a lot from that um, in my mind. You know, when I was writing my own book, um, just wanting again wanting to sort of be back in that that place, which is weird to say, isn't it? I mean, no one really wants to be in a war, and of course nowadays we have wars going on that are absolutely horrendous, but there's a feeling that if you were back then, life would have been in some way simpler and you would have known who the enemy was. You'd have known what the challenge was. You'd have known how to do your bit without this sort of complications that we all feel in our day, in our lives nowadays. Mm. Do you think it was simpler because you you appreciate the simple things because you know how precious they are when you're in such an extreme situation so like you're talking about covid the, the pandemic right. i think we we did suddenly start to appreciate the simple things again didn't we yes yes yeah exactly i mean suddenly just going for a walk outside you know became a great source of enjoyment um and yeah you know being able to get outside your house um i mean i, I guess a lot of it is is just looking back we only see the high the headlines and we don't appreciate the all of the mini dramas that people were going through we imagine it would have been simpler then but certainly the idea that you didn't have those smartphones telling you what to do all day and and you know, you you weren't on call all the time and yeah you yeah you sort of knew you knew what to do yeah i, I think it's an interesting i mean growing up in sussex and i know this as a reporter based mm-hmm. in sussex for five years of my career uh, around the sussex area it is still very much um East and West Sussex, I suppose you should describe them as two counties that still very much in the period that I was living there in the 90s lived with a wartime shadow in the sense that it it felt like the sort of place where the bunting would come out for VE Day in a a way that there wasn't the same passion elsewhere in the country. You've got all the sort of legacy sites that were still around yes. like yeah. you know for instance in my patch in chichester when i was in chichester mm-hmm. i had tangmere and right, goodwood yeah. airfields um nearby and um i remember doing stories where for instance they were naming some social housing in brighton mm-hmm. after a flight sergeant who's hurricane had been right. shot down and crashed and yeah. excavated from the site of where they were putting these houses mm-hmm. and it just um you know, it just seemed to be sort of not quite Vera Lynn country, but right, well, it was right. because she lives in Ditchling. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. What I'm saying is, is it just felt like it was a, a county-wide or area-wide pride in right, the part right. it had paid, played, paid particularly in 1940 and the mm. Battle of Britain. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And obviously, I don't have any experience of growing up elsewhere in, in England. And, and obviously, every part of, Eng- of the UK was touched by the war, um, and especially when, when the bombing happened. But certainly, yeah, I think that that part of the southeast, it literally was the invasion zone. Um, I mean, again, my walks in the fields with my dad and my dog, we would be walking past, you know, every 250 yards or so, a pillbox, um, and there were there are lines of pillboxes that converge on Uckfield, um, which makes you think, huh, that's interesting. So, you know, what we've got all of these defensive lines converging here. Um, and then you look on a map and you think, wow, yeah, we are we're directly in line between the south coast and London. Um, 
and and the more you do the research the interesting thing i found is you you sit down and make stuff up for a book and mm. then you go and do the research and often yeah. the re- they were thinking the same thing as you were so for instance you know I'm, i might be walking in a field thinking huh a, a plane could land here so if i was the farmer i guess i'd want to try and stop that happening you know maybe i'd dig a ditch or something across it and then you do your research and found well of course they did that and i, I saw a great picture the other day on a sussex at war facebook group and that it was a line of old cars literally just parked across the field because they were like guys we've got to get going on this today we've got to stop those planes landing um so yeah it was very much you know you can almost see the sea from most of the places and beyond the sea you can almost see france and that's where the enemy was so Mm. it was very very tangible um and, and of, of course, again, when we think of World War II, we always think of, we know the outcome. You know, we, we, know, we know that they didn't invade and that then we had D-Day and then the war finished. Um, and we, you know, we won, if you want to put it jingoistically like that. But um, at the time, that's not what they thought. You know, they ditched. So if you had been a, a farmer in Sussex or in Upfield or Ditchling or Chichester, you would have been like thinking literally in a few weeks time, there will be tanks rolling up my, my driveway which must have been terrifying. Yeah, it's just trying to imagine how that would feel. It's Well, it's interesting with your opening scene. Mm. It's quite mm. dramatic. Um, a Spitfire crash lands in John Cook, who's your protagonist's field. Yes. Yes. And uh, it's closely followed by the arrival of a Messerschmitt. Right. Um, and the pilot, the German pilot jumps out and sort of wants to have a, a sort of chivalric, conversation right. two nights of the air and it doesn't yes. quite work out the way he hopes but um that's uh that was quite a quite a scene quite a, a you know jumping off point for your for your story yeah i i and and again i use creative license there but from my readings of his of the history books i certainly that happened over france you know that the actually i think the raf officers and the um, luftwaffe officers Often they, you know, maybe they even went to the same schools. They often trained in the same places earlier on in in their careers. And there was that sort of sense of, okay, I've got one down. Let me just buzz around the field and make sure he's okay. Um, Or even maybe I'll come and land and just make sure he got out of his plane okay. Hmm. Um, Certainly at the beginning of the war. Um, So, yeah, I thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if that had happened over, you know, over our side of the the English Channel, which it may well have done. and, and and then I wanted to sort of set up this idea, which I, I try and touch on throughout the book, really, that it's not it's hard to know who the good guy and the bad guy is at times, you know, and, and also this idea of when you're in war, I think John Cook says this in his interior monologue, you know, everything in war is obscene um, to those who aren't there. So, you know, it's not always going to be gentlemanly shaking hands and, you know, good stuff and, and all that kind of thing. So. Yeah, I was pleased with that. I, I that as a process, I before I even wanted to write the book, I just sat down and wrote that scene, and I thought, well, yeah, I've got something here. I like this. Yeah, that, I, that's. I mean, it's interesting. You talk. You've mentioned that the research came after you'd written your mm-hmm. your sort of arc and how you wanted the story to work out. And in a sense, I know exactly how that feels because I'm writing something in 1940, and the cold reality of, of history and the things that I imagine were there right. uh, in say in my case, Hyde Park, probably when I do my research will Hmm. prove not to be the case. You might be surprised. Well, I might be, but I mean, you know, I'm making a lot of guessing, you know, there's a a sort of, how much did the book change as a result of that research? Um, 
it's it's a really interesting balance because I do think I think when you're writing about for me writing about something like the Second World War, there is a certain sense of responsibility. You know, you just can't just completely make up stuff just for entertainment um, because you know it's just not respectful. Um, on the other hand, I think as a storyteller, you know, it's your right to sort of shift things about. Um, so I did. I find my research gave me lots more ideas. You know, you'd read something and you're like, wow, I never would have thought of that. That's such an interesting thing. I'll put that mm. in. Um, and dates, um, you know, you, you can put those in and sort of make it give that verisimilitude to, you know, that people will appreciate. Um, one guideline I tried to have as I wrote it was I'm a big fan of The Crown. Um, I, I love it. The crown. And yet, every, after every episode, my wife gets straight on her phone and she's like, did did it really happen? <laughs> and of course, you find out, well, you know, maybe five years earlier, maybe not that person. And so I, I kind of feel like if the crown can do that sort of thing, you know, with such a great topic, then I'm allowed to sort of move, you know, a battle three days this way or that way, or, you know, give someone a gun that might not have been shipped over to England until a week later. So, yeah, I certainly try to give myself some flexibility. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I, I kind of understand where you're coming from, but at the same time, one of the things that took me out of Series 1 of The Crown quite early on right. was a scene where four Lancaster bombers flew over uh, at the beginning of the war, flew right, over right. Windsor Castle. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, they weren't in service till 42. So... Uh, <laughs> yeah that didn't quite work for me and yeah. you know that's the sort of you know hollywood stroke you know network netflix assumption that you know the, the most familiar bomber of, of world war ii right. is of course right. going to be flying straight over i bet there were rules not to fly anywhere near um <laughs> royal palaces in case right. you know you have a malfunction and fly into windsor castle so yeah. it, that kind of stuff winds me right up i must admit but <laughs> at the same time I have that friction within me saying, well, right. that's yeah. but at the same time, yeah, you've got to have some license. Otherwise you are paralyzed right. by the facts. As I, I also think of um, Lee Child, who's another writer who's mm. influenced me a lot. You know, I, I read in, or heard, I think heard, a, a, maybe it was at Bloody Scotland I went to and he was talking, he said, you know, I just make the stuff up. You know, I've never started a tank. I don't know how you do that, but I just write. He got in the tank and started the tank, you know, and I thought, well, yeah, good for you, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I've got another friend, Patrick Larsamont, who's writing a great series about Spitfire pilots in the war. And, and he's got mm. a lot more level of detail than I have. But he said, you know, he said, wherever you are, there'll be somebody who knows a bit more than you who gets very upset. And so you just dr figure out where your line is. You're going to get the complaints like people will say to me, oh, you say you use the analogy of like, you know, she looked like one of those curvy pictures they drew on the front of the bomber. Well, they weren't doing that in 1940. But you know what? It was a good analogy. So I'm yeah, going with yeah. it. <laughs> but I mean, you, you, like you say, you're going to somebody is going to take you to task on something. Sure, and it sure. could be a type of drink, a character who's drinking exactly. in a pub at a certain time. They'll say that wasn't invented for two years. So why are they drinking right. that? <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, it is. It's a fiction, and it's. I mean, for me, mine is a sort of a Jack Reacher style adventure, I guess, in a way. So yes, I try to be respectful. I try to be real, but it's you know, it's just as much as. Actually, the other the other writer I took a lot took some advice for was Ian Fleming. You know, he he sort of said, you know, when you're writing Bond, you can write the most unbelievable nonsense but if you then describe in great detail the firing mechanism of the Warther ppk pistol 
it it really sounds like you know what you're doing <laughs> so um i've tried to do a bit of that as well you know you have some nonsense scene and then you just describe a gun in in actual detail well that's interesting isn't it because that's something that someone like robert ludlam and right, particularly right. michael Crichton, i think can right, fall into yes. the trap of doing and 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 that is to kind of slow things down with mm-hmm. four pages of very detailed right. research that they've done yes into yes. a nuclear submarine for or in tom clancy's case that'll be right. you know <laughs> Um, it, it it can sometimes get in the way, but your work has also been compared, and you know this is a very um, natural comparison with Robert Harris, who right, right. broke through with Fatherland mm. and has written World War Two books. And I most re- the most recent book I read of his um, was v, was V two, <laughs> huh. um, and again, you know Robert I think has a small team of people who do all the historical research or support his historical research for him. I, I suppose think. you get to a point when you can have well, he can, yes. afford, right. he can afford it. <laughs> yes. But you know, sometimes um and he finds the drama in knowing those you know mm-hmm. going into the into the granular detail and finds little things that will be a plot device. Yeah. But sometimes and he can miss the target, I think. I think with V two he uh, did because was that a pun. <laughs> Because he it, he'd forgotten that actually there needs to be a narrative here that that has a satisfying act ending and it didn't really for me so yes, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't why, why I'm sort of digressing on this but how much of an influence is Robert Harris say on you? Um, not so much Robert Harris actually. Um, I haven't read so much of his stuff recently. I think it was the publishers who who chose him. Although I think mm. he's an awesome, awesome writer. Um, I mean, definitely growing up, I, I mean, Frederick Forsyth was another one, you know, I read like the dogs of war and all those sorts of things. So again, not particularly historical, but those sorts of, um, you know, men's books, I guess. Men's action, action. action adventure. I think. Exactly. Action <laughs> adventure, Jack Higgins, you know, yeah. those sorts of, um, Alistair so, McLean. Alistair, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and I think there's a place for that, you know, I, I think, and, and I do think Lee Child's kind of owned that space a bit for a while now, mm. um, um, along, you know, along with some others. But um, so now I, I like that sort of, and you've got to, you know, probably put a bit of sex in there and describe some guns and then, but then I think what people are responding to in mine is, I think hopefully I've then within that got some believable settings some good characters that people actually, you know, take to um while they're having their their you know boys own adventure mm. Mm. so a bit of escapism yeah i think so i think mm. so um, but i, I, I yeah. like your, your your main character in john cook you know so he's um a war veteran in the sense that he had some experience of first world war yes yes but not to the extent that his brother did right um is that right you know so his, uh, his uncle uncle Norman. his uncle i'm sorry yes, yes his uncle yes. has been as you describe him as, as going through every every major yeah. push every major yeah. battle and returns in a demob suit with a cardboard suitcase mm. and sits down in his familiar chair and doesn't say a word for the next 20 years right. um which <laughs> sounds like my grand my which is one of the one of those um very very impactful pieces of description i think mm. but i think it mm. sets up the context for what john's about to face yes. in being pulled away from his farming duty because he's keeping the thing going yes. for his uh you know for his family yeah yeah and i mean that actually was that was based on on sort of family history of you know of, of relatives who had come home you know utterly 
destroyed by shell shock. Um, and yeah, I. So I, as I say, I, I think I try to get this balance between you're going to have the adventure, but then with the characters, there is a sense of realism. Um, I mean, I was listening to the audiobook the other day, and on, honestly, I was in tears at that point, especially the next morning when he says goodbye, because John's going to sign up, and then, you know, Uncle Nob's got a tear rolling down his face, and I was, I was actually on this little plane that I was wiping my face all the time, and I, I thought, oh my god, everyone's going to be wondering what I'm going through. Um, so I do. There is a lot of emotion in there as well, um, and and yes, it, it sets up the idea that John is surrounded by a generation of people who you know really went through a lot in that in that the Great War, mm. um, as we always call it. You know, I think it says like it's always capitalised. You know, the Great War, and it's um, yeah very reverential. Um, but yeah, what a hellish thing to have gone through. And and there is this sense, I think, that comes through a little bit, this sort of sense of shame, um, collective societal shame that the right, Great right. War, what the hell was it for if we're right. having to do this again? Yeah. That comes yeah. through, I think, in 1940. Yeah, you can you can imagine. And, and you know, by the time we got to 1940, there'd been, you know, five or ten years worth of run up to it. So it was literally, it was just finished. And then, um, you know, and generations of men on both sides gone. And then within five or ten years, the politicians are at it again, and you can just imagine the disgust and, and the dismay, and you know that the average person would have felt like, you know, really, um, yeah. I'd, I, I something that stuck with me. I remember reading once a woman was talking about just shortly after the First World War. She was, you know, let's say she was twenty, and her her school, her girls' school, they were called into an assembly, and they were literally told there are not going to be enough men for all of you the world is not going to be the same that you thought it was going to be you know you most of you are going to have to reimagine a different life for yourself you know you will just need to get companionship you'll probably work and i just remember thinking wow you know like a whole generation just gone um and then they just they were just gearing up to do it again you know like how stupid is humanity mm. Mm. yeah fair. So a lot of the sons of the right yeah right. Well, I, I was going to ask what's popping into my head at the moment um, is the, you know, about your writing, if mm. if, if I may, in terms yeah. of you, you know, you this is an achievement. This is something you had always wanted to do. You've you've right. published a book yeah. with with uh, Hodders, so which is fabulous, mm. um, and the window of opportunity was locked down. Right. So now that you are a published author and you've got right. this fabulous <laughs> character, how difficult is it to marry it against you know? the life that you have the day job right right um yeah it's interesting i mean i'll actually can i just take two or three minutes and sort of tell you about yeah my story of how i got myself yes please get, yeah get myself in gear because yeah by quite, all means by all means um you know I, as i said since a child since being a child i always wanted to be a novelist and literally for the last 20 or so years my new year's resolutions were drink less start exercising and start writing and, you know, every February or March, I'd be filled with self-loathing that all of these things had clearly gone off the rails. Um, and actually, about seven or eight years ago, I started writing a, a children's book, a middle grade book that was a sort of a Harry Potter type thing. And I got about halfway through. And again, it you know, it ran out of steam. And I started, you know, the self-loathing kicks back in and you're, like, you're never going to do this. And so I thought, OK, Stephen, what's the what's the most painful thing you can do to yourself? to make yourself do this. So I thought, well, I love having a beer in the evening. I, I won't drink, not a, you know, not a drop will touch my lips until 
I've written the end on that book. So I, you know, next day didn't drink, day after that didn't drink, and a few months went by, and actually I was feeling incredibly good about myself and powerful of like, hey, I've taken this thing that many people frankly struggle with, and now I'm like every, every day I know I won't drink. Okay, fine, and I felt this great sense of power. Um, and interestingly, I never did go back to that book, but I still haven't had a drink for you know seven or eight years. And then a couple of years after that, my dad had some health problems with his heart. And I realized, Stephen, it's time to stop messing about with this. I'm going to start exercising. So I took the same approach of like, with the drinking, it's like every day, you know, I never have a decision. It's not like, shall I have a beer today or not? It's like, well, no, it's, if it's a day, I'm not drinking. So I said, okay, from now on, every day I'm going to exercise. And I bought myself an exercise bike. I do. And, and the thing that made it work was I'm only going to need to do 20 minutes. Like we can all find 20 minutes in a day, no excuses. And so again, since then, if, if it's a day and I'm, I'm still here on this planet, I will be exercising. And then, so then uh, give that a couple of years and I, and I still wanted to write this book and I had this idea for John Cook and I was thinking, okay, I've got to go and rent a cabin in the woods, you know, like in misery or something, you know, how do <laughs> writers do this? You know, you've got these myths of like writers. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute. Why don't I just do this 20 minutes a day thing? So I did, you know, I, I, I did lay out an outline, but then from then on, I said, you know, starting tomorrow, every single day at that computer for just 20 minutes, bite-sized chunks and, and six months later, I typed the end. Um, and actually, I might, literally, I was just crying when I was sitting there thinking, wow, I, I've wanted to do this my whole life. Why didn't I do this earlier? Because actually, I'd quite enjoyed it. Um, so to answer your question, for me, actually, I found a process that I think is replicable. You know, I can still sit down in a chair every day for at least 20 minutes and write something. And if I do that, tiny, tiny bite-sized chunks, I can now trust that six months or a year later, I'll have a book and then I can do all the editing, which as we know is the, you know, the really good stuff. Um, so yeah, I've actually just, I've delivered um, John Cook book two now. Um, so hopefully we'll be talking with Hodder about whether they would like John Cook three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, um, and then thinking of others. But yeah, having that process gives me a tremendous sense of well-being. That's brilliant. That, yeah, yeah, I love that story. And I'm I'm looking at you now thinking, oh, God. 20 minutes <laughs> a day, you could easily do that. I'll tell you what, we, we'll share it. I'll go on I got you in got trouble a bike. Now. Just <laughs> over there, there's an exercise. No, no, I don't do them at the same time. The I think yeah. it's entirely fair to, to, to look at me and, and think, right, well, if only. Um, because I'm in, you know, I think that you've taken a journey that, that I still embark on every January as well. But, uh, right, you know, right. probably don't get any further than, <laughs> than, than you did for some time. So it is, it is, that is fascinating what can be achieved if you if you apply yourself on a daily basis to something mm. and um mm. and you can surprise yourself but in terms of the the journey to publication so yes, you got yes. your manuscript that's a different story so how, how right. difficult was it or so know, from the end to yeah yeah hands. yeah um and i'm glad you asked actually because i love i love thinking about this and i i love the chance to talk about it because you know for us this is all like really interesting but no one in my life wants to hear it so <laughs> um you know like, can i tell you how i've got married and or well, not really um <laughs> so yeah i mean one one thing that i've learned so first of all i i had the the draft and and this is going to sound silly you know as soon as i had the draft i I went onto Twitter, which I'd heard about. I'd heard this is where, you know, the writing community gathers. And I started seeing, oh, there are some competitions. You know, there was um, 
various writing competitions and I actually entered three of them and I was so ec- ecstatic with my book I remember thinking oh but when they when they give me the first prize for all three of them that's going to be a bit awkward I'm gonna have to like tell them of course and of course you know I didn't even get long listed for any of them but that's just how ecstatic I was with the first draft um, then actually I did learn about I did a, a, a Curtis Brown creative um, edit and pitch your novel I think it was and it you know it wasn't one of these ones where you need to get selected you just pay your money and you go on a zoom um, which I did find excellent you know and that gave me some some learning and some structure around okay you think you finished but now let's give you some exercises to run through and actually I found that very useful in just having homework you know by next week you will have written a bullet by bullet outline by next week you will have done some character work um, and I really enjoyed that um, and actually I did but by the end, I did feel like, yeah, I've got something here. Um, and then I think in my day job, you know, I, I actually work as a, um, so I've worked in in different areas of business. Um, and I've begun to realize that, you know, the way that you get things done is is by meeting people and, and getting to know them. Um, and so, again, I learned about these opportunities through people like Jericho Writers and I Am In Print, where actually you can, you know, pay a, a reasonably minimal amount of money and get on a zoom call with an agent and i and i thought wow you know i want to do that so um i did a, a some one-on-ones actually through i am in print which well, they were lovely um and actually the first agent that i met um uh, jordan lees he came on the screen and you know he'd had to have read my my sample because i've paid him to do that and he said yeah this is great i want to read it and i was like oh okay what should we talk about for the next 15 minutes <laughs> yeah. um so and then a week late he was on holiday a week later he called me up and said well he actually emailed said can we talk um so we were having this really awkward conversation and in the end I said Jordan can I just ask is this a conversation where you're going to offer me representation or or what and he said yes it is you know to be fair so that was two years ago got got an agent um, Jordan Lees with the Blair partnership and they've been amazing Mm -hmm. um and then yeah Jordan sent it out you know, we went on submission after working with him in about February, um, almost two years ago. Um, and interestingly, that first wave of submissions, it was all no's with some very nice comments. But one of them, uh, Morgan Springer at Hodder, he actually said, look, if you're interested in doing a bunch of work to it, here's all my notes. Um, wow. And of course, I was I said to Jordan, well, yeah, like, a, you know, a major publisher said that they would read it again if I did some work. So I did the work that made it better. And, and then, yeah, Morgan said, yeah, you know, we'd love to offer you, offer you publication on this. Um, and as you know, the publishing world can move quite slowly. So that was great. We want to publish it. We're really excited. It'll be in 18 months time. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's yeah. Great. And that's, that's relatively quick. for traditional Right. Publishing. Yeah, that's what they say. So, um, yeah, and, yeah, just come out now. So. And in terms of getting those notes um, yeah, yeah. and having, I mean, look, it's 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 difficult because, you know, mm. we obviously uh as a company have mm. you know, as publishers are working with with authors yes all of whom um i think probably when they go to the end think nailed it right. um and then and then and then <laughs> I'm there's the, win pro- all the competitions and then and then all the all the processes after that is people influencing and challenging oh, yeah. and yeah. which is actually a very important part of the process but it's it's from a, from an author's point of view difficult but you yeah. i mean as a first-time author, so you've got these notes from a uh, you know um, uh, an editor, editor at a major yeah. publisher. Yes, yes. 
what did you learn from the insights that you got from those notes? What 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 stood out? Hmm. Um, I mean, interestingly, there was nothing. We didn't rewrite the book. You know, it was they were tweaks. I I think I learned to take all of the elements more seriously you know you sort of when you're writing it just for yourself you can gloss over some things and you throw in a minor character here and they just serve a purpose to get you from a to b so i think that's where morgan was very good he was able to say you know i really like this character that you've stuck in here let's Mm. let's make more of that or you know here you're clearly just trying to get from here to here let's actually spend some time doing that um so it's a bit more like just a teacher coming in and saying look I can see you've got potential. You need to just put in a bit more effort, um, which I respond well to. Um, and also, the other interesting thing was in all of my edits, I also had to realize at times that I get to say no. You know, I'm still the owner of this, that I do get to take some of those and leave them and say, you know what? I've thought a lot about what you said. I don't agree with that. And that was actually the hardest thing for me to sort of push back because i'm just like a rule follower like you know if a teacher gives me marks i'm just going to do all the things <laughs> so i think another writer just said to me you know these are suggestions and actually jordan was very good he would say to me these are suggestions it's your book um and then finally i mean again from from working in sort of the business world i love being on a team i love it when other people come up with ideas that make your ideas better so you know i I actually started as a writer when I was about 18 or 19. I did some TV writing and probably back then I was very precious of like, oh, I'm an artist. Whereas now <laughs> I'm I'm a member of a high performing team, you know, of an agent and a publisher and they all have awesome thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very wise. No, no, because I, I also, I, I'm an editor as well as um, publisher. Mm. So I know, and I, I just got back a manuscript um, from an author of a, a book which I edited and I like the fact that some of the comments she put she said no I like what I wrote so thanks for your <laughs> right. suggestion yes thank you but no but I like that because I yeah. thought yeah good on you you know you, you feel quite strongly about that so yeah and I agree you know if then, I was you wrong know, if you, you want right. to push it great let's 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 discuss it you know as 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 a team as as yeah, equals yeah, yeah. Mm, that was fascinating and you've mentioned you've finished manuscript for book two or yes, at yes. least it, well, it's, yeah my it's, version it, of it yeah your version your version is the, <laughs> the competition winning one <laughs> and you know in a in a in a in an ideal world this arc would carry on for, for a number of books yes. um did you have an arc in mind when you started with john in the first place or did that just emerge you know given you're giving yourself mm. basically most of second world war to work with so exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is i mean you know drawing again from the foils war experience you've got you know any number of interesting points in time through through the second world war and i will i'll try and go quite slowly through those so i don't run out of them (laughs) too quickly um yeah and a a lot of the books i love are series you know i love picking up the latest bosch or a john sanford or the you know (laughs) the latest um reacher or whatever so i famous five famous five exactly you know back <laughs> to the greats of, of Enid Blyton so yeah I, I would love to think that there would be book 10 or even book 20 of this at some point wow. um, and yeah you, I tried to drop in some kind of seeds that I can then go back to as well do you think you'll break the 20 minute rule though at some point um I mean sometimes I allow myself to sit there for longer um 
but I don't know, you know, I would try to not do less. Um, but yeah, I can certainly imagine that there are some, like some days, yeah, you get into the flow of it and I might, I might go crazy and write for half an hour or 40 minutes. <laughs> mm. But I do find after a while, I am, it, the, the quality goes down and I need, for me, I need that time away from the keyboard then when I'm like walking, walk to work, walk around the fields or the woods. And then I have the good thoughts so that when I go back, I can make it better. Mm, I think, I mean, there are writers who I greatly admire who can write a book in, you know, a month or so. I couldn't write a book that quickly. Um, I wouldn't, it wouldn't allow my brain to catch up with what I was doing. No, because it's quite an intense activity, Mm, isn't it? That that 20 minutes of writing. I'm interested to know though, in 20 minutes, Mm. you know, I mean, people talk about word counts and it's sort of an obsession. Um, (laughs) But how, how many words would that, Equator, would, say, that yeah. would that be a scene? Would that be a chapter? On average, it's about 400, 400 yeah, to five. Okay, so maybe it, it would be three three days to get yourself to a, to a chapter Probably, then, would it? Probably, yeah. And I think what that lends itself to is, is the book moves quite quickly. Because if yes. after 20 minutes I'm already getting bored with something, then, you know, that sort of, I think you pick up on that as a reader. So there's like every, you know, four or 500 words, probably a new thought is coming along. Mm. Um, and people have said, you know, it's kind of a page turner, which I'm I'm pleased with. Um, so, yeah, that's that's just my short attention span manifesting itself. Mm. Mm. And and now you've heard the I mean, I've started with the audiobook version. Mm. I mean, I. I um, I'm always fascinated to listen to other narrators. He's a narrator. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And he's terrific. Um, but has that changed your? I mean, you mentioned how much emotional right. impact that scene yeah. had of him yeah. going to go signing up. Um, has that changed the dynamic in your mind about where the you know brought the characters more to life or changed the way you see them? It's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah, to then hear your work back through another artist's yeah. mind. Um, and I guess the answer has to be yes in a way. I mean, I'm kind of glad that I wrote the second one before I listened to this because now I'm listening to it. Yeah, I'm thinking, oh, that's how that character is. I, I, I will think about them differently now. You know, now I've heard Orlando's version of, you mm. know, of Doc. That will color the way I think about Doc when they're sitting and having a drink in the pub. So, and the same yeah. thing with John Cook. So it's very interesting. Yeah, it's almost like this long distance you know, collaboration, even though you never actually sit down and discuss it. Um, yeah. That's, that's very cool. true. That's very true. I mean, most of the books I've ever done, it's, right. you know, I've uh, not quite insisted, but um, it generally has been, here you go, this is what I've done from based on the words you've put in front of right. me, as right. opposed to how do you want this to sound? Yeah. And um, I actually find that a much harder process to do when you've got somebody asking for x accent right. and whatever it you know often when i'm in the booth and i meet a character for the first time um i might have a couple of attempts at getting a voice for it but very often right. it's the very first one i settle on mm. um it just is obvious from the dialogue what sort of person this is yeah. and yeah. how i would personal uh, you know personify that that character yeah it's interesting, actually, me and my wife's an audiobook narrator. Um, and so she, you know, I've watched her for the last five or six years reading all these books. And so I know what drives audiobook narrators mad. So, for instance, in my book, I haven't ever said, he said in a German accent tinged by his three years spent at Eton and then his two <laughs> years in the South yep. African veldt. Because she, she'll be, you know, and Orlando would then be like, oh, my God, you know, what do you want of me? Um, so, yeah, it's 
I've tried to not give any kind of leading cues for that sort of stuff, just to leave it for the audio book narrator to no, work that's out. I, I like, I, that's good to hear because that drives you crazy too, doesn't it? <laughs> well, to, to, to a degree, yeah. I mean, you know, um, and I find this with American authors are very specific about um, how they want things to sound. Um, yes. they, they, you know, they actually want it down to the, the county of Texas yeah. that they're, the character's from, not just a general Texan accent. Yeah, like, you're get my American. like your Bostonian yeah. leprechaun who'd spent two years in Texas. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, that's the one that always... Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that I, I, I can never um, get out of my mind. But um, it's always nice to have one line that might suggest i mean it's mm. interesting because i've just mm. been doing some middle grade books myself right. for narration the first time i've done children's books and all i need is a line about the way that they speak and bingo the whole character comes to life mm. yeah yeah so um no it's the thing that i try i i've noticed that i know um, daniel gets wound up about is when you start a book and it's it's the villain talking out loud in, in the prologue oh yeah, like, yeah. Have the prologue. how am i going to do villain? this so yeah i i here's my pledge if i ever write a, a crime thriller with the villain up front i will not have them i will not do that and i will not have them talk even in the interior monologue because it's basically got to be in their voice so yeah that's very yeah, that's a very good point and that has happened yeah. in crime novels isn't it right yeah yeah. So uh, no, that's that's fascinating. Well, look, um, we've reached the point, oh, Stephen, where um, we've had a brilliant conversation. It's been full of um, wonderful um, insights, and um, it's been great to learn more about how you've got to this point. But um, this is the point where things—I don't know—we don't know no, until uphill or downhill, depending but, on your perspective. Well, here it is. It is <laughs> Rebecca's random question. If you could choose any artist to create your portrait, now notice I didn't use the word paint. It doesn't have to be paint. Mm, create your portrait. Who would you choose and why? Um, so thanks for allowing me the leeway on the artist because I'm not, I'm not, I don't know a ton about um, portrait artists. I'm going to say Ridley Scott. Um, not as, you know, clearly I'm not going to be some kind of Napoleon or gladiator or, <laughs> you know, Thelma and Louise type character, but I, I love the way he works with light. Um, and, you know, he's always been my absolute hero in terms of filmmaking. So I would love, I would love to spend a day with him where he was just lighting me and then taking a photo. And honestly, I could just grill him about his, you know, his life and his work. That's a great answer. So you didn't just say Leonardo da Vinci or... <laughs> David Hockney. I could have, yeah, damn it. Some of the greats I could have gone with. But, yeah, that's yeah. a great answer. I love I, that. I've always thought Gerald Scarf would get me in an instant. <laughs> he's um, Gerald Scarf. He's the guy who used to, well, he did, he's a fabulous cartoonist. And um, he did the, uh, the probably best known piece of work that he's done, apart from work with Pink Floyd on the wall, was um, the opening credits for Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. Uh, okay, so yeah, those yeah. sort of uh yeah uh exaggerated caricatures yes, yes yes exactly um so i think i'd like him to do it that's a good answer mm-hmm. yeah. how about you i want you to do it but... come on you, can't, you say you can't draw but i would like to see how you see me i would do you in an audio <laughs> portrait mm. oh they, yeah, why not? I'd capture your spirit and a range of characters. Excellent. I like that. Okay, that's yeah. my Christmas present sorted then. Um, <laughs> it's not far off what I'm doing, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Well, look, um, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we 
congratulate you on the first book. We're looking forward to and the next and the next and the next and the next. Where can people find you online? Um, so I am Stephen Ronson um, on t- Twitter is probably the best place um, or Stephen Ronson author on Instagram. Um, I will get a website one day, I promise, but those are the best places to find me. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. And um, thank you so much for spending some time with and us. Go, go enjoy the snow now. <laughs> thank you very much. I will. Thank you. Lovely to speak to Stephen Ronson, and uh, we wish him every success and uh, good answer also to your random question. Yes. Now you know we feel quite busy at the moment recording podcasts because we already have recorded our um, one of our Christmas specials. I'm very excited about. It. We've got two Christmas specials coming for the week, Christmas week and New Year week. Because um, frankly, we don't want to do any interviews during that, those two weeks, do we? So no. So what we've done is we put together a panel or two panels of Hobeck authors talking about themes within crime writing, and we're talking to brilliant trio of Hobeck authors about humour in crime fiction. Yes, so the dark side of crime. And no, so, the dark side of humour. So Ali Morgan <laughs> will be joining us with Jenny Ensor and Sue Shepherd, and we had a fabulous conversation um, yesterday, which we, you will hear over Christmas period. It was, it was terrific and mm. um, really, I think, got to the nub of quite a few interesting areas and topics. So, he- yeah. I think it's it's good to to go thematically sometimes. Um, yeah, and... I think that that's true. Um, anyway, that's something to look forward to, and we also want to look forward to next week's guest. Who is our guest next week? Um, our next week's guest is somebody who we did announce we were going to have a couple of weeks oh, ago. That's but, right. Um, she um, sadly caught um, a lost voice disease, and that's Cathy. Yes, that's it. Uh, Cathy Giorgio is joining us. You're handing me the phone because you're... My parents are just not very good with... with, You see the word and you know automatically how to say it. So an American author, Cathy Giorgio, joining us. Yeah, looking Um, forward to that. Yeah, who's... uh, See, she had a good Thanksgiving last week. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And uh, uh, hopefully a great Cyber Monday. (laughs) Preceded by Black Friday. I, I get lost in all these shopping days that that have overwhelmed everything online at the moment and uh, I, I don't i rarely find anything worth buying in these sales either they're one or two things but as i have no money at the moment i didn't indulge so no we haven't been spending money but what did we do yesterday we watched doctor who we did watch doctor who the return of doctor who with david tennant as the 14th doctor as opposed to the 10th which he played before and um it was uh pretty good i mean oh. Russell, the other i mean there's other People back in Catherine Tate on screen as Donna Noble. But behind the scenes, the person who reignited Doctor Who as a modern phenomenon, Russell T. Davis, is back in charge as the head honcho of the show. And the production side of it is being handled by people who also worked alongside Russell T. Davis before. But what they've done, the BBC studios have given up quite a lot of their control. They've given it to what are called Bad Wolf Studios, reference mm-hmm. to some of the storylines from the early uh, return of Doctor Who. And um, so they've built extra facilities in Cardiff. Disney have come on board with a $100 million budget as well. So there's a heck of a lot more being put on screen. Um, and there's a lot riding on it because Doctor Who's ratings had fallen through the floor in the previous three years 
to the point where there was almost no point putting it on. It was mm. costing far too much. And there are reasons for this. Um, many people turned off by the, the preachiness of the program, but actually they doubled down on that in, in a way, talking about um, uh, they had a trans character in there. Um, there were other factors about pronouns and all this sort of stuff that went on. But nonetheless, despite all that, it was a romp. It was very funny. It was great script, great acting. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, but you think about, um, so Doctor Who, and I want to bring in Torchwood to this as well, because that yep. was also um, Russell T. Davis, and that's a sort of spin-off from Doctor Who. They've always had that as an element. Oh, no, there, look, if you look at the 70s, and I've been watching a lot of the old 70s stuff, the John Pertwee, so uh, Doctor Who and the Green Death um, is an environmental story where Joe Grant, who was a regular uh, you know, assistant, in the early part of the John Pertwee era, uh, goes off and marries a, prof- a Welsh professor who is using, uh, has developed, um, a, a fu- found a fungus in the Amazon that will um, replace meat. <laughs> so long before mushrooms became, or jackfruit or whatever, yeah, yeah. and the vegan thing, you know, they were talking about it then. And they were talking about, you know, the fact that, chemicals being used in a particular process that was creating these sort of um, disturbingly unpleasant maggots that were going to destroy the world and all this sort of stuff. So they have always talked about, or uh, Terror of the Zygons is about the evils of North Sea oil drilling and um, the Loch Ness Monster creature comes and smashes up the oil rigs and stuff like that. So they've always done it, but it's it, it became a real problem. Now, American fans were really, really upset during the Jodie Whittaker period and Chris Chibnall writing the stories, when they did the Rosa Parks story, which is the last story you remember watching. Yeah, I, t- I stopped watching it after right. that. Cause it because just... they felt, what right has a white English show director to tell us about and um, putting a, uh, a white English uh, actress into the scenario where Rosa Parks defied you know, the race ban on sitting at the front of the bus? Uh, how dare they move in on our history and that was the start of the you know the sort of revolt against doctor who mm. and its preachiness in america particularly it's very very strongly felt there and its viewing figures fell through the floor so and but in this country it fell through the floor because it was badly written badly made terrible some terrible acting it basically it, it was a shocker it lost the magic so to me the magic of doctor who is that it contains quirky characters so as a quirky person yourself watching it, you, when I was a child, I loved it because it contained quirky characters. And it's funny, but it's, it's very quirky. What about the fear? Funny. Did you enjoy the horror? Because it was really dark in the 70s, and it was a reflection of the society that we were growing yes, up in. Yes, I did. And like you say, it was, a lot of the sci-fi on TV and in books was like that. Was was very and people were brutally killed. I mean, you didn't, you know, you heard them scream. You didn't necessarily see them from behind the sofa. Yeah, you heard you them know, scream. You know, like that, there's an example: the Seeds of Doom, where the bad guy who has unleashed the crinoid, which is this man-eating plant thing, um, <laughs> he gets chewed up in his own. Um, it was a sort of bio compactor device that basically chewed up, um, you know, uh, refuse and, mm. and burnt it for fuel. And he gets chewed up in it. And, I mean, that was... You didn't see it happen. That's more powerful, though, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it was 
truly terrifying. Oh, yeah, Doctor Who terrified me. And I watched it from a very young age because I had older siblings who were watching it. So, you know, I was sort of five years onwards, I think, mm. watching it on a Saturday evening. And I used to, I did used to, I know it's a cliche, but I did used to watch it from just behind the sofa. Yeah. But, you know, we, we were talking about this last week because there was a very brief sketch involving the Doctor arriving, David Tennant, uh, at the point where the Daleks are being designed. Um, so it preceded Genesis of the Daleks. And they deliberately had Davros as an ambulant mad scientist as opposed to one in a wheelchair. And they made a deliberate decision, Russell T. Davis had made this decision, to stop the connection between people being dis- being disabled and being evil. And I still find that very difficult to deal with because the fact is he was in a wheelchair not be- didn't make him evil. He was evil anyway. He just had an accident developing during the war against the Thals. I'm getting really into this now. Um, and it was incidental, really, that he was in a wheelchair. But, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's they're going to have to tread carefully here because there is definitely an area of people being hating being preached at to that extent and forgetting what Doctor Who traditionally is. So that's going to be very interesting to see how this develops, frankly. Yeah, but I think Russell T. Davis is aware of that. that yeah. I, and he's he's definitely the right person to be doing this. I oh, think. no, definitely. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting to see him back, and um, the quality was way up on what we've had in the last few years. Do you know what? I, we also watched Doctor Who Confidential last night, and I loved what he said when he said... If people say you shouldn't do that, that is what, why you should do it. Yeah, okay. And I thought, Fair good enough. for him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, let's uh, leave the Doctor Who chat. I could talk about it for decades. <laughs> That's another podcast. Yeah, it, it's been one of, you know, it was a childhood obsession of mine. Massive, massive Doctor Who fan. So you may have gathered that. But um, we ought to mention that uh, we've got a busy week ahead. We really do have a very busy week ahead, and we yes. always say that. But this is... Monumental, not least because my dad should be coming out of hospital finally. He's had one day at home in the last seven weeks. Yeah, he keeps threatening to come out and then staying. Yeah, he, so? uh, well, he, you know, he's in the hands of a specialist lung technicians at the moment. And um, hopefully he'll be well enough to come home at the end of the week, which uh, is wonderful. But it's going to make my life quite busy <laughs> uh, looking after him as he settles back at home. Anyway, that's by the by. We also have a new Hobeck book to we mention. Do. This gets published on Tuesday. And it's book five in the series. Wow. And it's a wonderful series. This is the George Zamet. George Zamet. Detective George Zamit. Sorry. Zamit. You should know you've been uh, narrating book one. Yes, so. I have. Yeah, in, in my spare time. Yes, and that's it's right. book five, The Last Bird of Paradise, is out on Tuesday. It's brilliant. Um, it is uh, takes George and his son Denzel to a refugee camp in Syria. And from there, well, guess what? Another massive adventure breaks out when George least expects it. If I was George, I would just stay at home. It's safer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that's what his wife, Mariana, would like uh, him to do. But um, it never happens that way. He is the accidental hero again. And um, it is a very touching story as well on a on a personal level. I think it really has emotional punch. Yes, and um, that's the feedback we've had so far, haven't we? That yeah, it really, really lands. And it's another terrific book for, by A.J. Aberford or Tony Gartland. Um, uh, you know, uh, his 
nom de plume. It, it really is a great book. So that's The Last Bird of Paradise out on Tuesday, and um, it is set to be another massive hit in the Maltese book charts, we hope. And in fact, after recording this podcast, I'm going to be wrapping up uh, a good few copies that we've had um, ordered through our website, so that's fantastic. Absolutely. So congratulations to AJ Aberford, The Last Bird of Paradise, and of course to Hilly Barnby for the publication a couple of weeks ago of Best Served Cold as well. We keep going as Hoback. You can check out all the details about our authors and our books at uh, our website, which of course is www.hobeck.net. And uh, we look forward to seeing you there. And you can sign up for our newsletter, which oh, you're about to write now. Yes, the Sunday newsletter is coming your way soon. So okay. look in your inboxes. Well, we'll look forward to episode 150 next week. And uh, we look, well, it's quite a milestone, isn't it? Um, feels fantastic. I know, we're still talking to each other. We are, we are. And you're still listening to us, which we're enormously grateful to. Who said that? Um, well, some of them, some people are. <laughs> uh, it's always a, a you know huge pleasure. So... From myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. We'd like to wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.